This is Saved by the 90s, the show about 90s films and the pop culture surrounding them. I'm your host, Adam Patterson. I'm joined today by the incomparable Mr. Ken Bakley, and I'd like to welcome you to September 1995. I'll never forget the time Mom went to the store and forgot to get the Crunch Berry cereal. No Crunch? No berries? I had to think fast. It's a good thing Captain Crunch has a fax machine. Then, there they were. The Captain, the only berries and Crunch, and part of my bounce breakfast. That's what I call fast food. Then, everything was cool. How can I ever thank you, Captain? Can I, uh, borrow your car? Crunch berries, the only berries with Captain Cult cinema creates not only loyalty and adoration to films which may have otherwise flown under the radar, but it can also encapsulate the pop cultural eras of both the movie's production and its subsequent appreciation. While the 90s hosted a slew of great films that would go on to achieve cult status, September 1995 brought with it an inordinate number of titles that would garner a dedicated following. Our first movie this month is the only feature film directed by Gregory Wyden, screenwriter of Highlander, a cult classic in its own right. Starring Christopher Walken as the angel Gabriel hell-bent on reclaiming one of those darn souls, this is The Prophecy. Centuries ago, a second coming was foretold. But what's coming isn't what anyone expects. It's a war in heaven. The prophecy. <laughs> I love, I love the truncated trailer yes. for that. I just that's all. That's all there was. It was mostly like do 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 like that type of stuff. It it, was, it, uh, it truly sells you on the. Uh, deep, deep valleys that this movie takes you through. It's, it's so complex. Absolutely. Released September 1st, the prophecy follows the angel Gabriel coming to earth to collect a soul, which will end the stalemate in a war in heaven, but a former priest and a little girl stand in his way. Ken, what did you think of the prophecy? I watched it about three hours ago. And I don't remember it anymore. <laughs> it's so funny you said that because I feel the exact same way. So I never saw the prophecy. I never saw any of them. So over the past week, I decided to watch all five of them. I can't believe there are five of these. Yeah. So the the first three do feature Christopher Walken, and it's sort of a trilogy. And then the last two which came out in 2005 and 2011. Those were kind of separate. They actually follow a a, sort of a new story involving a book or each one of them is a different book that they're trying to get, but it's, it has the same lead in it. Um, But the, the funny thing about the whole series is that they are so forgettable in every way. Like I was never interested in, in this series and finally watching it, I'm just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I can, I can see why I wasn't that interested because they're so boring and generic. <laughs> like It's, I mean, I guess the first one's the, the best one really the, the first three are pretty much all the same. Like it's the same movie over and over again. I do like that Christopher Walken kept coming back even as they were just direct to video. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess maybe he had fun playing that role. Oh, of Gabriel. It, it looks it like he's really like a, enjoying himself here. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love the, 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 
There's a couple things that I remember about the prophecy. And again, I just watched the series this week. It should be fresh in my mind. I actually watched uh, four and five just today. So those should, should be really fresh in my mind. And yet they've already, they've already left. They're already gone. What is but, the fifth prophecy movie like? When you're five deep. They're, they're hunting this book that is supposedly written by God. It's like God's words or something. And they're, they're trying to prevent Armageddon. It's, it's not great. I'll tell you that. Do they prevent Armageddon? Yeah, they do. I, I suspected so. They do. In the, in the fourth prophecy, Tony Todd, aka Candyman, is the he's the angel in that one. In the fifth prophecy, it's it's I don't even know who the angel is. It's a uh, somebody who goes from like body to body in that one, so it's not any one person. It's like uh, that movie that came out earlier this year, Every Day. Did you see Every Day? No. Every Day is a young adult movie about a spirit that moves from body to body of someone the same age as the amount of time they've been on Earth. And they're about 16 years old now. And every day they wake up in another person. And this teenage girl falls in love with the spirit and they go around and she has to figure out where the spirit is every day it's not that great <laughs> oh my god it's not awful either it's, and, it, it sounds like a joke it sounds like you were just pitching me something that just popped into your head and you were just freestyling that i saw it about a month ago and i still remember it more than this movie that i saw today i remember Walken being pretty good he is and I remember the the perching. I don't know why they chose to do that, but like one of the big things is like all the angels like to perch up on chairs and stuff, <laughs> and they just they love to do that little perching thing. And I'm not really sure why. And also, they're they like to kind of taste things. They're very tactile creatures. It's, it's it seems. all very sense based. Everybody's like tasting things and smelling things and. There is one odd scene where Eric Stoltz kisses a very young child. That made me extremely upset. Very uncomfortable scene. And and I, I was watching and my wife was like, can they do that? Like, is that legal for them to do? Is that, it yeah, doesn't I felt, seem like yeah, it should I felt be like legal. I should, like call a hotline or something. <laughs> It was uh, it was somewhat disturbing that scene. I guess he was transferring a a soul into her, right? Isn't that what he was doing? I I think I think it was like the uh, it was like the uh, 1971 version of the Beguiled all over again. <laughs> so Gabriel comes back to Earth. There's this war that's happening in heaven. And Gabriel comes to, I guess, reclaim this soul that is going to end the war. It's going to, I guess, win it for one of the sides. And I guess Gabriel's on the bad side. That's never made all that clear. <laughs> yeah. The, the interesting thing about this, this whole series, really, is 
that there's really no clear distinction as to who's good and who's bad. It's just like they all kind of seem sort of bad and you really never know who to root for. Like in prophecy three, Christopher Walken's pretty much just a good guy. Like he's just a straight up good guy as this like long gray hippie hair. And he's, he's a nice guy in it, but it's it's very odd like you, you never know who who you're really rooting for because you think it's eric stoltz in the beginning but then he's like kissing on that girl and you're just like Ugh. yeah yeah i do realize very quickly on when watching this though that is that they really want you to be uncomfortable with the christopher walking character because it seems like every time they cut back to him they've put like even whiter makeup on his face and made his clothes and hair somehow a shade darker than they were in the last shot. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they, there's some good special effects in this too. That's another thing that I'll give them credit for. Like the, when he like lights the body on fire and there's some, there's some cool stuff they did for, for nineties special effects this this feels very dimension if that makes sense like this feels very indicative of dimension films during this era oh yeah and like all these dimension films just had the same like the crow is a good example where they all these they they all had the same vibe to them they were all like many of them were in like kind of dark decrepit derelict buildings and like stuff sunlight filtering through dusty windows mm-hmm. it's got that feeling and like every time a light comes on it's just the light makes everything look so much worse <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i also feel like we have to talk about the the score for this movie that for several sustained points almost impressively manages to incorporate both Gregorian chants and Native American flute music in a way that feels completely insincere to both. What was that? I don't know. What was that all about? So weird. Yes, I I mean, it's a very on-the-nose interpretation of the film's settings and its themes. Uh, Yeah, overall, I would say I'm not into this movie much at all. There's not much to get into. It's it's very face value, but at the same time, completely convoluted. In addition to Eric Stoltz and Christopher Walken, you have uh, Elias Cotius. I just know him as Casey Jones from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Mm-hmm. He plays this uh, this former former priest turned detective, which is kind of an interesting thing. He loses his faith and guess becomes a detective. It's a natural career path, I guess. One other thing I noticed is that frequently Christopher Walken will call people monkeys. Like he calls humans monkeys a lot. Yes. And they that carries over to the sequels too. And I think that it's strange that they frequently refer to humans as monkeys. And like when he talks about how he likes one, it's more in the way that you... Like, I don't know, a animal that you saw on TV once, like one of the, like, just 
like some animal you see in a commercial and it's like i like that dog in that commercial and he's like i liked this monkey <laughs> he, d- uh... he gets all of the worst dialogue and he has a lot of fun with it so I, I can see why he wanted to come back and keep doing these. I, I think, like I said, I think that this was probably a fun role for him. He just gets to be kind of weird and like lick, lick blood off of a table and act creepy. And I, I think that it was probably just a good time for him. Mm-hmm. There's also, there's a couple other weird scenes in this, like towards the beginning. So the, the soul that they were looking for was held within a, a police officer and that officer, or was it like a, maybe it was like a police chief. It was somebody. I can't, can't remember. It was, it might've been even a captain, but he, he passed away and Eric Stoltz goes and sucks the soul out of him uh, when he's in the casket. And I, the, the scene was interesting to me because he goes into the church mm-hmm. and there's nobody around anywhere. And the dude is just in there with the casket open and he just walks up and kisses him and sucks out his soul and walks away like it's nothing. And I'm thinking, what? Why would they just leave a body in an open casket like that just out in the open with no one around? I mean, it does underline the the idea that there are few environments more quietly unsettling than like a church when nobody else is around. Like it's like there, because there's so many, so much iconography there and there's so much history and it's a very old building. And then when you're in there in a space where nobody else is, you feel like you are being watched. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sometimes it just does feel like that you would just stumble across a casket. I guess. I guess that's one way of trying to rationalize that. I'm not I don't sure. know. I just want to. I'm not sure I'm buying it. Talk but. about how much of my uh, early perceptions of what defines an unsettling room would just be like the labyrinthian halls of the old church that I went to when I was younger. Mm. Mm-hmm. That very early on defined like the environments I find creepy because it was an old building mm-hmm. and it was just sort of. Like you would go into like the, the fellowship hall, like the big multi-purpose room and it would be like seventies furniture and wood paneling. And then you go into the other room and it was like, you know, like a sanctuary, very ornate. And there's just something about how nothing in there feels like it exists now. And it's just trapped in different quadrants of time. So I don't know, show me like a, room that has purposefully not been updated in several decades and i'll show you a room where something's about to go down <laughs> uh, i also wrote this down and i i remember the scene but i don't remember really the context and there there's a scene when a kid gets hit in the face with a volleyball i just wrote down kid whacked with volleyball yeah. i don't remember i think that that was in when they were first introducing the kids at the the school and i just remember seeing that scene and seeing that kid get hit in the head with a volleyball and laughing because it really didn't it, it seemed really pointless to include it but it was still funny i still have not gotten over 
that clip from the 2016 campaign of Marco Rubio campaigning in Iowa and then throwing a football and hitting a kid in the face with it. <laughs> I love that. I still think about that a lot. I I frequently think about kids falling off of playground equipment or, or slides or getting hit with things like that one, that one clip of that kid and he's in that like foam like uh, I don't know how to describe, it, but there's that like sort of rotating foam thing, and it hits him, but he like kind of sticks to it, and it just carries mm-hmm. him around. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I love that video. I just think it's so funny. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it as far as the prophecy. I think that it is to me. It's similar to the Children of the Corn series, which is also Dimension uh, property where it is just kind of boring and the sequels are just retreads of the previous movies. So the whole franchise ends up feeling very dull. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny cause I, I typically like these, these types of movies. Like uh, I, I always have a soft spot for end of days with, uh, with Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger I always liked that movie for some reason. I think that came out in 99, actually, so we might be able to cover that at some point. I've never seen that movie, but I will, I've seen the poster a lot, and that is... That's such a great poster. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. You also have Vigo Mortensen in this, playing Lucifer. A, a very young Vigo Mortensen. A very young Lucifer? <laughs> I guess so. He He was good. I thought he was good as Lucifer in this. And then you have Adam Goldberg as Jerry, who is Christopher Walken's little lackey. He's sort of the comedic relief of the film, I guess. He just wants to die. He just wants to die. A pre-millennial, but a millennial mood. Yeah. In the second one, in the Prophecy 2, it's actually Brittany Murphy is the the lackey. Yeah. She she plays the the sidekick. Part two and three actually have a pretty decent cast, similar to this one, and the like. The production quality is on par with this one, so I think all three movies are pretty pretty equal. And then it, once you hit part four, that's when it takes a dive. I but, think I read on the IMDb trivia page, which is of course. Uh, a preeminent academic source that the second prophecy film was supposed to be theatrically released. And then they went, no, it's just as, I would say it's just as good as the first one. That is to say, I don't think that any of, I don't (laughs) think it's good at all. I think that that that's the thing about it exists at the same levels with, with, when you talk about cult films, oftentimes, and you're going to see a trend in this episode where the films are typically not very good. I mean, the, the the prophecy is just not a good movie, but it was popular enough that it spawned four sequels. And the last one came out in 2011. So I think that the franchise is not dead yet. It is a little bit hard for me to understand where the in is for a cult following, because you can watch a movie like basically all of the other movies we will talk about today. And you can kind of see quite firmly where an audience comes in and appreciates it down the road. But for this, I can't really 
see anything. Like you could have told me this is a movie that nobody saw, nobody thinks about, and you're the first person to watch it in 23 years, and I would believe you. I think that the walk-in character is probably the main... Yeah, I, I think that's the that. main hook that gives this its its cult quality, uh, just because he acts so weird and goofy in this. I think I think you see the same thing with Nicolas Cage movies, like for instance the um, the Wicker Man remake. The Wicker the Wicker Man remake has a cult following because Nicolas Cage is in it, and the movie's horrible, but he's so ridiculous in it mm-hmm. that it's formed a bit of a cult following because of his performance. Like you can still throw out a, a not the bees reference and people are going to pick it up. Have you seen drive angry? Yes, I have. If you, if you enjoy drive angry, just wait till Mandy comes out. That, that one will melt your brain. Any final thoughts on the prophecy? Mm, no, but I do want to see Mandy now. Don't turn that dial. Saved by the 90s. We'll be right back. Hi, we're Boys to Men, and we want to sing for you. Like to have Boys to Men sing for you and your school? Now, Fox rocks your school with your chance to win your very own Boys to Men concert at school. Plus, McDonald's is catering your jamming concert. We'll be kicking it just for you. Too cool. 500 other kids will win Boys to Men, then to now videos and dinner at McDonald's. Listen up. To enter your school, go to McDonald's and pick up an entry form at this display. Hurry, the cool Boys to Men concert plus food from McDonald's could happen at your school. Sponsored by McDonald's McWorld. With the popularity of the internet growing ever stronger, movies with a cyberspace theme emerged in greater numbers. We'll definitely be covering this trend in more depth in a future episode, but our next film, although a critical and commercial flop, developed a large fan base over the years, including from yours truly. Released on September 15th and starring Johnny Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie, it's time to hack the planet with hackers. Hidden beneath the world we know is the world they inhabit. Dave? Yeah, Mom? What are you doing? I'm taking over a TV network. Finish up, honey, and get to sleep. They're hackers. Hack the planet! Hack the planet! It's not just something they do, it's who they are. They can crack any code and get inside any system. But this time... Come here, look at this. It's some kind of virus. Unless $5 million is transferred to the following account, I will capsize five oil tankers. They just hacked the wrong guy. No. You're not good enough to beat me. Yeah, maybe I'm not. But we are. They're the only ones who can prevent a catastrophe unlike any the world has ever seen. Never send a boy to do a woman's job. Hackers of the world unite. Cops on the building. I need more time. This is the end, my friend. Hackers. So many sounds in that trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of... Uh, if you see the trailers, like lots of flashing and like, uh, they, I can they see like, it in my mind. They like to include all of the sort of uh, s- s- crash zooms that they do through like the circuitry and stuff, and the 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 circuit boards that happen in the movie. Like to stuff all that into the trailer. Most of this movie takes place on someone's very poorly conceived imagination of what a circuit board would look like on the <laughs> <Yeah>. inside. <laughs> all right. A teenage hacker finds himself framed for the theft of millions of dollars from a major corporation. 
Master hacker Dade Murphy, a.k.a. Zero Cool, a.k.a. Crash Override, has been banned from touching a keyboard for seven years after crashing over 1,500 Wall Street computers at the age of 11. Now keen to get back in front of a monitor, he finds himself in more trouble than ever. Adam, when I first suggested to you that we make this episode about the cult classics of September of 1995, and then I threw casually in, we could also do Hacker's you immediately jumped at the opportunity uh, and have mentioned quite a bit about how important this movie was to you. So I feel like we need to start off by having you explain your history of this movie. So Hackers is an extremely influential film to me. I saw this movie probably, I think it came out, in I think it came out whenever it came out on uh, pay-per-view is when I saw it. I didn't see it in the theater or anything like that. Recorded it onto a VHS as I do with pay-per-view stuff. You know, that's that's what I did back then. I went to my my grandparents' house and they let me rent whatever I wanted. And this is how I saw Natural Born Killers, by the way. I rented it on pay-per-view. I was like 12 years old and I saw Natural Born Killers. Cause they had no idea. They just let me rent whatever. And I saw that hackers was on pay-per-view. I was really excited about that. I watched it and it, it blew my mind. See, now I was already into computers by this point and I loved playing with computers. I knew that I wanted to do something with computers as a career when I grew up. And when I watched hackers, I knew like back then I, I knew that this was not an accurate representation of what would ever make you think that Adam? <laughs> I knew that it wasn't an accurate representation of that culture, like hacker culture. But at the same time, I, I sort of yearned for it to be true and was kind of hoping because I knew that there was like a kernel of truth in there. I knew that these characters were based on real people. Like some of the, some of the characters some of the characters' names are that of real hackers. And I was thinking like, okay, well, this has to be based around some sort of reality, even if it's blown way out of proportion and stylized and given this like slick coat of uh, techno paint. But at any rate, I loved the film and I just watched it over and over and over again. And it, uh, it, it really kind of shaped the things that I was interested in, it takes place in New York city. Uh, and I was obsessed with New York city even at that age. Uh, and I still am. And that's why I live here. And it was all about computers and hacking. And I, I loved that. And I would later go on to pursue a career in computers. So this was a very influential film for me and I've seen it a million times and going back to, revisit it for this show it just all these memories you know just kept they just were flooding in Mm -hmm. all flooding back (laughs) and it's and you know watching it it's not a good movie like it's not a good movie at all i I love like there's some of the dialogue in this movie and even back then i remember thinking like do i just not understand it like is it just something that's over my head and i don't understand it that's what i was thinking at the time but now i'm just like there's there's bits of dialogue in this movie that make no sense at all. Like some, some of the things that the characters say are completely nonsensical. Some of the things. 
and I don't mean that, and I don't mean that in like a techno jargon sort of way. I mean that in like a human being wouldn't say those words together sort of way. <laughs> I watched this very late at night, and I thought I was like so tired. I was just not processing what was being said, and then I realized pretty quickly, no, that's just what's being said. Yeah, it's a it's a tough movie, but at the same time, I think that it's a really fun movie. Oh, definitely. I mean, what is this? Was this the first time that you've seen this movie? This was the first time I had seen this movie. And watching it after you had told me that it was extremely influential to you at a very formative time. And as soon as I started watching this movie, I immediately thought, this is this is Adam as a movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. And I mean that I in mean, a very good way. Yeah, I mean, it didn't. I mean, fortunately, it didn't really help shape my taste in film. Like, I feel like that that came from other sources. But yeah, it uh, it's just a fun movie. Like, I still I still have fun watching. I still think that it's not a good movie, but uh, I, I I can totally see the cult status of this movie. No, definitely. This this is a movie that, in contrast to our previous movie, and like the other two movies we will be talking about, you can immediately sense that there is a future audience built into this, despite the fact that it was generally, by my understanding, not all that recognized upon its release. No, I, I don't even know that I was aware of this movie when it was in theaters. I think I only became aware of it after it came out on video or, or whatever, wherever it it came. I think they came to pay-per-view first, then video much later. But at any rate, I'm not even sure how I knew about this. Maybe I was just reading like the TV guide or something and, and read about it in there. This is a, a very early role for, Angelina Jolie. I think this was like her first starring role. I think she might have been in a couple small things before this, but this is definitely one of her earlier mm-hmm. films. There's a scene, it's funny, there's a scene where she there's like a this sort of sex fantasy scene and she like und she unzips her jacket and opens it and I remember as a kid like I've watched it so many times. There was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a slip, uh, where you could see her chest, and I was I would always pause that and show <laughs> my friends like you could see her chest, <laughs> and then watching it now in high definition, there's another scene where she's wearing a shirt that's like see through, and it's funny because on the crappy VHS copy that I had, you could never see that, but it was very clearly she was wearing like this mesh see-through shirt it almost takes the fun out of those kinds of formative examinations of yeah i mean i don't i don't want to get too far off track but there's uh, a really good example of that for those curious about the the topic of standard definition to high definition is if you watch the the film sleepaway camp which is one of my all-time favorite horror movies and there's a scene in sleepaway camp where the killer is in a is in a doorway 
And in the regular SD version, you just see the silhouette of the killer and you can't make out who it is. But in the HD version, when you watch it, it's very clearly the, the cousin of the main character. And it makes no sense seeing it in HD because they just used him as like a stand in for the killer in that scene. So when you see like the Blu-ray version, like the Scream Factory version, you see him standing there and you're just like, what? (laughs) That doesn't make sense. But anyway. Bad video quality can save some movies. It absolutely can. It absolutely can. This is a very 90s movie. Now, I'm sure that that's something that we're probably going to say a lot on this show. and And I apologize ahead of time. But. This is this is such a movie that encapsulates this time period where uh, you have the the prevalence of the internet, you know, coming coming at you, and this this concept of hackers. Now, I mean, it, obviously, something like hackers have been around for decades, at least one decade <laughs> prior. You know, you had war games that came out in the eighties, and that was. Matthew Broderick was a computer hacker in that, but there there weren't really any other big hacking movies out there. There were a couple that sort of touched on it a little bit. I think Sneakers uh, was dealt with uh, some computer hacking, but this was the first movie that really featured hacking in a prominent way. And like I said at the top, there's a lot of elements of this that are sort of grounded in or based in reality, even though they're very much mutated and sort of blown out of proportion. It definitely feels like there has to be a starting point that had some rational base in it. Yeah. I mean, I already, I already mentioned the, some of the characters were based on real people and there's like this scene when, when Dade first goes to that, that crazy club with the, the like the crazy rollerblading club with the giant screen. Can we do a whole episode about that club? Well, the the great thing about that club is I, I feel like there were so many clubs like that in movies of this this era. I mean, you look at like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, like the Foot Clan's Hideout was exactly like that, and there were just so many other movies that had those sorts of clubs and i don't know if those were even real like i don't i don't know if those existed outside of movies probably not i read that that club was actually a, a space in london the rest of the, the the rest of the movie was shot in new york in fact it was shot in uh, predominantly in the east village uh, it was at a high school in the east village and i actually used to live in that same neighborhood mm-hmm. coincidentally but yeah, uh, so there's the scene in this club and the one character has these what, what they call rainbow books and he was going through all of those books and those were actually real. Like those are a variation of those actually did exist in real life. Uh, these things called rainbow books that you could order for free from the government and they would just send you these books. Uh, so, the, so a lot of the things are sort of based in reality, just... Uh, I mean, some of the stuff is just so like the headset. I love the headset thing he wears. Like, what's the, 
Like, what is that doing for him? I have no idea, but I am so glad that everybody is wearing the things that they are wearing at all times in this movie. Uh, everybody's fashion was on point in this movie. Uh, I gotta say, it was it was those something little, else. Those little tiny sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Who's wearing that? I can't remember who exactly who's wearing that. Is that the um... Lord Nikon? Mm-hmm. I think he had the he he had the tiny glasses, played by Lawrence Mason. Mm-hmm. I liked that Mark Anthony was in this. It's good to see him. <laughs> Played a sec- secret service agent, look a very young looking Mark Anthony. Uh, the other thing that made this a very '90s movie was the soundtrack. The soundtrack was, at the time, I mean, I would I would argue that it's still a good soundtrack to this day. But the soundtrack to this movie was insane. It was, was top notch, and it was actually. They actually released three soundtracks for this movie. There was three of them. And this was sort of a popular thing back then. I remember Train Spotting had two soundtracks. A lot of movies had like multiple soundtracks to them. Yeah, I forgot to mention this when uh we were talking about the prophecy because I don't know how to talk about the movie The Prophecy, but I did enjoy in accordance to the fact that every movie in the 90s seemed to really go all out of the soundtrack that I, it cuts immediately to a Skid Row song over the closing credits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> out of nowhere from its uh, Gregorian Native American flute fusion to a Skid Row song <laughs> over the end credits. Oh, boy. Yep. Yep. It seems about right. This, this soundtrack had a lot of uh, the prodigy. This was, this was during a time where electronic music was really becoming... A, a thing like this uh, English EDM music. I don't even know if they called it EDM back then, but yeah, you had the prodigy and underworld. And uh, I think there was, uh, there was some Moby in there and I think some orbital. So a lot of these kind of great electronic artists that sort of, uh, gained prominence in the mid nineties. So I loved the soundtrack. I still like the soundtrack to this day. I mean, I like the soundtrack too. Voodoo people by the prodigy, which was used very heavily in the movie. I think that's a great song. Mm -hmm. You liked it overall, right? Yes, because it never questions its own universe. Like it's an objectively ridiculous movie that, somewhere between uh not really understanding its basis and just wanting to inflate it for the purposes of making a film somehow meets in this very strange middle that allows it to just shoot right up and go completely off the rails from there and it's a very rare place for a movie to get there and then never question it for the entire runtime but i mean <laughs> It goes all in on the things it goes all in on. There's so many shots of like those like hard zooms right into like the the, the circuit boards and yeah, uh, inventing the Gibson, inventing new and new and new newer ways for characters to be apprehended by federal agents about every 15 <laughs> minutes. 
that actually reminds me. I think that there's there's a few actually really good shots in this movie, like well framed shots. And one of them is when one of the characters gets arrested by the secret service and they bust in through his window and Mm -hmm. that sequence of the camera just panning as the secret service just breaks in through his window and he's up on his bed. Like, I think that that was a genuinely great shot. That's a good shot. Roger Ebert gave this three out of four stars. He wrote, uh, quote, the movie is smart and entertaining then as long as you, you don't take the computer stuff very seriously. I didn't. <laughs> you really goes, can't. Yeah, you no, know, you can't. He goes, I took it approximately as seriously as the archaeology in Indiana Jones. <laughs> and that, that's really what you have to do with this movie is you can't take the computer stuff seriously at all. It's It's utterly ridiculous from the headset thing to the computer like fisher stevens plays the villain and he's on this giant like computer and it has this strange keyboard it's like yellow keyboard with like round black keys that keyboard haunts me (laughs) that are completely unmarked and he's just tapping away at it doing things who knows what he's doing launching the da vinci virus Mm mm-hmm which uh, I think is probably one of the funniest sequences when when they're being hacked and they're everybody, all the hackers are launching their viruses at the Gibson and Fisher Stevens is there and Penn Gillette is there and uh, Lorraine Baracco is there and she's just yelling stuff out and she goes like a brain, brain cancer, rabbit, flu shot. <laughs> and you're just like, what? Oh my god, the dialogue in this movie. It's uh the dialogue in this movie it was written by Raphael Moreau, whom on his IMDB page claims that during the writing of this film he was under surveillance by the FBI. Uh, oh. I did, I, I did read that several real hackers, including Tristan Lewis and Kevin Mitnick, were consultants. They were technical consultants. On the film. I hope they were invited to the premiere. <laughs> That'd be cool. I mean, Kevin Kevin Mitnick was, he's probably one of the most famous hackers. He mm-hmm. was uh, famously in prison for many years without a trial. I say I hope they were invited to the premiere because I, I want to imagine being consulted about a movie like some years in the past and just giving general comments about what you do and then having to like watch it when it comes out in a public setting and having it be hackers. (laughs) Yeah. Just, just juxtaposing the, like the real life, what Mm -hmm. they, what hackers do with what they do in this movie and just how cool, how cool they are. Like you get the, you get the feeling that these kids are the cool kids in school. Like everybody, cause when they show the scenes in class, Everybody's dressed normally. Everybody's like got kind of your normal 90s style. And then these mm-hmm. these kids are like on another level. Like the stuff that they're wearing, like uh, Johnny Lee Miller's got like the pants with the uh like the straps that connect the two legs <laughs> in them <laughs> and just 
there's so much going on with the uh, with the costuming in this movie. I I'm not even sure what's happening. Raphael Moreau also uh, wrote the Rage Carry Two, another extremely '90s genre movie set in the high school that I absolutely demand that we talk about someday. <laughs> we will. The other thing is like the the representation of the hacking itself, I think was something that was a little bit silly. I can understand that they weren't really sure how to represent that visually, but what they did, they have like these giant, like mainframe looking servers and they're like navigating around them in like 3d space. And then when they go into the right folder, it's like, it, launches this sort of amoeba looking thing. It's just, it's so odd. And I, I feel like they just missed the mark with that. I bet the, the people who designed that went back and they, and like when Mr. Robot came out, they watched the first episode and they're like, shoot, that's, <laughs> that's what we should have done. <laughs> Cause there's an entertain there is an entertaining way to accurately represent that. And I just think that they weren't sure how to do that, or maybe they were nervous but does about it look as good as it does here. <laughs> I guess not. I don't think it does. <laughs> I mean, you certainly don't have voodoo people playing during the hacking scenes. So, you know, I feel like hacking is pretty underrepresented in film. Like there's not that many movies about hacking. Maybe it's one of those things that there aren't a lot of movies about because in the most visual sense, it's not a terribly cinematic activity. I I agree, but I also think that there are ways that you can represent it in a stylistic way that, that is aesthetically pleasing. Like I think Mr. Robot does a great job of representing that. I haven't seen much, Mr. Robot. I've seen a couple of episodes, but yeah. I watched the first season. I watched a few episodes of the second season, but I, I fell off. I want to I want to pick it back up because it is a really great show. I have so much trouble like, keeping up with TV shows. I got so into Hackers that when I was, we took a trip to New York. Like I, I went to New York a lot as a kid. We took trips here probably twice a year and uh one one year it just so happened that there was a hacker convention in our hotel that we were staying at in new york and for those of you familiar with the hacker convention here in new york it was called hackers on planet earth or hope and it was happening and i didn't have tickets or anything and i'm like 12 13 years old maybe and I ended up meeting this kid in the lobby and he turned out to be this really, really uh, famous Linux developer. He was like the security developer. Um, and he ended up getting me and my cousin passes, like all access passes to the conference. So I spent wow. the whole weekend at this hacker conference and it was just such a great experience for me as a kid who is has an interest in, in computers and learning how computers work and things. And like, I 
went and saw a panel that uh, Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys was on and this former CIA guy. And it was just such a great weekend. It was really, uh, it was funny because when I first met the guy, he was skateboarding in the lobby of the <laughs> hotel. And I, I was into skateboarding at that time too. And I, it made me want to go up and talk to him. And he was a lot older than me. He was still young. I think he was like 21. But we started talking and he's like, hey, do you want to go? I'm, I, I want to get some food. Do you want to go? So we went to this restaurant that was attached to the, the hotel. So you could go into the restaurant from the lobby. And my cousin and I went with him and we were sitting down and he was eating and we were just talking and stuff. And our parents, we didn't tell our parents that we were going with this dude <laughs> and they freaked out. So like they had hotel security searching for us. They had like everybody, like they were about to call the cops and it was just this whole thing. And then finally, when we went back and met with our parents, the the head of security at the hotel was like, you know, do you know who that guy is? He's like one of the top security people at who works with, uh, with Linux, the Linux platform or the foundation or whatever it was back then. So, yeah, it was just a good time. So I, th- I think this podcast should be more about your personal stories surrounding the subject matter of the movies. Sorry, I, I have a lot of... Uh, oh, no. I, I have I, a lot of anecdotes. I, I, think, I think we need that. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on Hackers before we move on? Raphael Moreau is the screenwriter that understands high school in the 90s better than anyone else. <laughs> the resurrection of Xena's greatest torment. Brings back memories, doesn't it, Xena? Callisto returns. <laughs> It's through me you finally fulfill your destiny. To ensure the crowning of an emperor. True patriots of Rome. He thinks he's a god. And to seal the fate of the warrior princess. She will come to you. I'm going to kill him. An all new Xena. Tonight at 8 on the WB11. September had a share of cult movies released, but it also saw the premiere of a TV show that would achieve its own cult status. Starring Lucy Lawless, Xena Warrior Princess was a spinoff of another popular syndicated show, Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. Developed by Sam Raimi, the show would go on to have a successful run on on the air with six seasons, all of which remained in the top five rated syndicated dramas with its second season hitting number one. Ken, what's your familiarity with Xena Warrior Princess? the name of the show and the people involved. And that it became a cult <laughs> classic. Uh, that's, that's pretty much the extent of my experience with it as well. I've seen right, a couple, talk. <laughs> I've seen a couple episodes here and there. I know that she does this like sort of battle cry thing that was pretty famous. That was really annoying. And I remember the show f- feeling extremely low quality. And I remember hating it. <laughs> and, I re- and I also remember not understanding why anyone would like it at all. That's part of what makes some of the very deep cut cult classics. Yeah, I think so. But the, but the weird thing is it it's a spinoff of Hercules, the Legendary Journeys. That's the one with Kevin, Kevin Sorbo. 
and it, that, that show was pretty popular too, but I feel like Xena really took off and sort of overshadowed it in the end. I think Xena was, uh, she was like a character. She was a side character in Hercules and it sort of just overshadowed, uh, that show. And uh, I don't know why, I guess, I guess people liked it, but you know, this was before the, the golden age of TV, as I think they're calling it now, where TV shows just became exponentially higher quality. Peak TV. Yeah. I mean, when you see Xena, you're just like, oh, oh boy. The everything about it just feels so rough around the edges. It looks very soap opera like. And is it, is it at least on film or, or they should, they should just go the whole mile and just put it on, on video. I just, just shot on video. I mean, it, if you see it, it, it looks like it was shot on video. I don't think it was, but I, I can't imagine it actually was. But. Yeah. It looks, it looks like it was. I mean, I think that that's probably just because it was all done on the cheap and there weren't really, it, it doesn't have a very cinematic quality to it it feels feels very cheap uh the costumes look silly and like like they were bought at a halloween store and yeah i just i was not into that show and i just for the life of me couldn't understand why anybody would would like it i still can't and i'm not i'm not really sure why it was such a popular show but xena is a fun word to say Maybe that's what it is. That's maybe that's, that's what it is. No, getting people to know what it's called so they can find it—that's half the battle. And I guess Lucy Lawless was she's she's an inherently likable actress. Uh, she, I think she's got a great name to start with. Yeah, there are a few better names in the universe than Lucy Lawless. Yeah, and she uh, she seems like she was probably great in it. I know that she was great in Ash versus Evil Dead. I was happy when they brought her on to that show, and she she did a really great job in that on that show. But yeah, I'm not so sure about Xena. It was a cult classic, nonetheless, and I'm sure that if you check it out on YouTube, you can find lots of uh, clips and maybe some episodes or something. I don't know what the home release status of Xena is it's probably on DVD, but I don't know if it made the jump to Blu-ray. That's kind of the other crappy thing about watching TV shows from that era is that everything was in standard definition with a four by three aspect ratio. So when you watch those shows, they feel very truncated and Mm -hmm. kind of crappy, (laughs) which is very unfortunate. We'll have to get a one of our guests one day if we start bringing guests on and find someone that likes it and try to figure it out from them. At any rate, I just wanted to mention Xena because it was it, it did develop uh, a cult cl- a cult status and it premiered in September of '95. Yeah, I I mean it's a thing that has been in the culture, and I'm. I, I don't take pride in being ignorant about it. It's not like I'm dismissing it. It's just I, I have to concede that I don't know much about it. Eh, I think you're probably better off. I don't know. I, I, I like to 
to keep an open mind. If it's a bit of a your culture vulture. Joss Whedon said it's it was like part of a blazing the trail. I'm reading right off the Wikipedia article, blazing the trail for a new generation of female action heroes, including Joss Whedon going on uh and in reference to how he went on to create uh Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. So yeah, yeah, maybe it's it's one of those things that it's not it's not terribly high quality in its own right, but it's uh its contributions to pop culture perhaps outweigh its actual space within it. Our next film, while not critically or commercially well-received, would later become a cult hit for its soundtrack, cast, and undeniable 90s vibe. Released on September 22nd, this is Empire Records. The staff of Empire Records had the coolest jobs on Earth. Something happened to me last night in Atlantic City. Did you win anything? No, I did not. But Lucas blew it. Everyone knew it. We're turning us into a music town? I have to pay for what Mr. Brilliant here did. Now, five friends have one day to decide what to do with the rest of their lives. AJ loves Corey, not the whole story. Corey wants Rex, first time at sex. Mark's raging mad, best day he's had. Deb shaved her head and made out she was dead. Gina did it again, this time to a friend. Want to know more? Check out the store, Empire Records. Featuring the music of Better Than Ezra, Gin Blossoms, Ape Hangers, Evan Dando, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and the Cranberries. Oh my god. <laughs> Love it. That that like list of artist names, there were so many of them. It felt like that uh those infomercials where it's just like uh mute uh alb- it's like CD sets of music and yeah. they just run them all through on the crawl- scroll at the end. Yeah, when I was when I was cutting that trailer together, I I was gonna omit the artist list at the end, and I was like, "No, why would no. you do that for, for this for this movie?" We I have to leave that ridiculous list of Toad the Wet Sprocket and all of those classic '90s bands. Oh man, a funky little record shop provides the setting for this youthful comedy that centers on the workers. There, as they try to help poor Joe, the manager who really wants to buy the place and recoup his losses after his well-meaning but dim-bulbed employee Lucas steals his savings and loses it all in Atlantic City while trying to increase it twofold at the gaming tables. If they cannot come up with the loot, the mega-chain Music City will buy it. That is Empire Records, my friend. Oh boy! So this movie made th- me so happy. <laughs> what did, What did you think about Empire Records? I just felt really good by the time it was over. It's just so wonderfully formless. It's just there are there are so many characters in this movie. The funny thing about it is some of the characters don't even pop in until like the second act. Mm-hmm. And then they turn out to be like pretty, pretty main characters. It's definitely an ensemble piece. That's but just what life's like. Th- they just keep piling characters on. And I read that this movie was heavily edited from its original version. Uh, they actually cut 40 minutes off of this movie. And apparently there were three significant characters that they completely removed from the movie. <laughs> which is funny to think about considering how many characters there are 
already. I mean, we heard it in the trailer and each character has their own little thing. I loved that that trailer decided to... Every actor was in <laughs> Empire Records at one point, but they were, most of them were cut. <laughs> yeah. I love how the trailer decides to go with the rhyming. It was, it was, a, it was a bold move to go with the rhyming narrator. And it there. works. It works. <laughs> I'm uh, very okay with it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I am. Mostly in like an ironic way. Me, I'm partially in an ironic way. The other thing I noticed, I, I really enjoyed this movie when I was younger. Uh, I was a big fan of it as a kid. Watching it now, I realize that it, this movie is terrible. It is absolutely awful. But I, I will still... get, I will say you can say it's terrible. Uh, I will just add that you're wrong. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty bad. But it it's still it's still fun. I think that I read uh, somewhere that. The there was a there was a review I think it was Variety that said that this is that Empire Records is a soundtrack in search of a movie, and I, I feel that that is very very appropriate for this movie. You have a really good cast, so you have like Anthony Lapaglia who plays the manager of the store. You have Renee Zellweger. You have Ethan Embry, who Ethan Embry plays a complete nut. In this movie, he's so weird in it. Like, he doesn't act like a human being, like a real person would act at all. He's just a cartoon. You have Liv Tyler. I think maybe this was the first time I've ever seen Liv Tyler in a movie. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think she's pretty good. I mean, she's all right. I think that a lot of the employees are in that phase of their careers where they're like overacting there's a lot of overacting in this movie, but it's, it's still pretty, pretty good time. Nonetheless. I mean, the focus of the, this movie definitely feels like it's the music. Like that's the big, the big thing is the music. There is music playing nonstop in this movie and they will play like, 20 seconds of a song and then switch to another song and play like 20 seconds of that. It's insane. When you look at the tra- the songs featured in this movie, there's like 150 songs. <laughs> it's stupid. The credits are, uh, I believe 78 minutes long and it's all just all of the music. <laughs> yeah, it's, you got better than Ezra and the cranberries. You got Guar in there. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good mix of of popular music for that time. What is it that so what is it that you that sort of struck you? First of all, is this a first time watch for you? Yes, I had I don't think really heard of this movie. I had heard the name. Like I've heard the titles of a lot of movies even before I got into movies, I knew the titles of lots of movies. But yeah, I had I didn't know what it was about. I just watched it and it just had that kind of lovely little lazy flow through all of these characters that I just found undeniably appealing. Maybe that was also partially or primarily because I liked a lot of the music. But yeah, my complaint is that they eventually have to make it about the plot and they should not have ever put a plot in it. It was perfectly fine for me just about what feels like 
and just an incredible setting. Like you, you feel the setting, this movie and you wish that you could, that uh, I think just looking over what people are saying when I logged it on Letterboxd, it was like, it feels like a place that you wanted to work. Like it oh, yeah. should have been real. <laughs> yeah. And I think that you have something with the idea of reducing the plot of this. I think that if you removed that whole, the stores being sold to music city, if you, if you took that out, it would feel almost like, uh, it almost feel like a Richard Linkletter film mm-hmm. where this is just a day. It's just a day in the life of this record shop, right? Like you have, employees starting their shift you have employees ending their shift you have the night shift coming in and starting their stuff and then each each person has their own feelings about their the other employees and they all have their own stuff going on in their lives and some of it is a little bit i mean this movie sort of runs the gamut of coming of age drama like Mm -hmm. every character pretty it, it it checks all the boxes right but it's the the characters by and large are interesting and fun and surprisingly for the number of characters, they're pretty well developed. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, maybe I just don't like it when movies ever have plots. (laughs) Well, I think that no movie should ever have a plot cancel plots. (laughs) I think that in a lot of cases, I think the plot, does bog down a movie and i think that a good example was is with this movie i like can you imagine if like dazed and confused if if link letter was looked at the script and was like oh man we don't really have a plot like we gotta we gotta put something in here and then they made it about some like like baseball tryouts or something where he was trying to get on the team or like yeah, you know, some, something ridiculous and it just the whole thing would fall apart and i think that this movie is just so scattershot a lot of the time i would like to see what that 40 minutes brought into it i'd like to see what what that was mm-hmm. yeah i i think i realized that because at the beginning when it's just um when it's just Lucas going to Atlantic city and then losing all of the money. And I was not, I did not find that in any way interesting. And then as soon as the movie primarily forgot about it, then I was in. Yeah. Because it's just about a bunch of fun kids running this Mm -hmm. crazy record store that like you said, it's, it's it's an incredible store. Like amazing setting. I, I would love to, I'd love to work there. I'd love to just visit that record store and hang out there. Like if that was in my town, I'd probably be there all the time. And to your point about the the soundtrack, it really was a great soundtrack. Like the the music in this movie is fantastic for the time. I mean, it it really sort of, I mean, there's like there's like hip hop, there's a lot of like kind of grunge stuff, there's some punk music in there. And it really does sort of encapsulate all the different genres that were big for the time. I would say that some movies like gross, uh, not gross point blank high fidelity, uh, do it better. But for the most part, I thought that they handled the music aspect really well. Even as the variety review said, 
maybe it is a soundtrack in search of a movie, but at least it nails the soundtrack. Yeah, and there was uh there's definitely some fun to be had in this movie. The the whole like the shoplifter subplot that happens <laughs> with with Warren Beatty. Uh Brendan Sexton the third, who is you may know from Welcome to the Dollhouse. I enjoyed that whole thing and how they handled that. And it just seems like Anthony LaPaglia seems like the mm-hmm. coolest boss ever. He gets so Lucas steals nine over nine grand from it's the, the store. He gets caught and Anthony LaPaglia doesn't call the cops or even fire him. He just has him sit on a couch all day. It's like, what kind of boss does that? That's not even a punishment. That's just what you do. Uh, Anything else on Empire Records? No, I mean, don't have anything more to say than say no more, Mon Amor. (laughs) Next generation gaming and mega movie based action collide in Street Fighter the movie. Digitized characters from the film plus all new super attacks and combo finish moves make this the best Street Fighter yet from acclaim. Whoa, did you pick up Street Fighter the movie game for PlayStation this month? Well, if you did, here's a quick cheat to unlock Akuma in Street Trial or Versus mode. At the character select screen, highlight Guile and quickly press up R1, down L2, right L1, left. R2. If done right, Akuma's silhouette will replace Guile's portrait. Remember, it has to be entered quickly or else it won't work. Our last film this month drew a large amount of controversy and became only the second major studio release to be rated NC-17 by the MPAA, the first being Henry and June in 1990. Drawing the ire of critics and concerned citizens, it bombed at the box office and became one of the most infamous titles of the decade. Of course, we're talking about Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. From the creators of Basic Instinct, the last time they took you to the edge, this time they're taking you all the way. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. I'm a dancer! The passion is real. The desire is intense. You can't touch me, but I can touch you. And the show is about to begin. Showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. Nomi arrives in Las Vegas with only a suitcase and a dream of becoming a top showgirl. She quickly befriends Molly, who works at the high-profile Stardust Hotel, and lands a job at a seedy strip club. A chance meeting with Crystal, the Stardust's marquee dancer, and her powerful boyfriend, Zack, brings Nomi one step closer to realizing her dream. But as she ascends to the top, she begins to wonder if it's all worth it. So, Adam, you do mention back there that upon this film's release that drew the ire of both critics and concerned citizens. I don't know much about the actual circumstances surrounding this movie's release. Was was the was a wide release NC seventeen movie, especially this one, was was it a point of controversy in and of itself? Yeah. Was it like discussed? Yeah, I mean this I, I'm not even sure I mean I know that this was that Henry and June got the NC seventeen and that was the first one, but 
I think that this one was the one that really drew, put a spotlight on the rating and Mm -hmm. just a lot of people like it, 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 there was, they were talking about it on the news and stuff like that. Like it was a big, this movie was a big deal. And there's a, there was all kinds of uh, kerfuffle about, cause I don't know what the, how many theaters Henry and June ended up in, but this, this one got a pretty big showgirls was a pretty big release. And at the time, Paul Verhoeven, you know, he's, he's coming off of basic instinct. I think this was the movie right after basic instinct. A lot of people talking, especially because of Elizabeth Berkeley, who's coming off of Saved by the bell. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never liked this movie, to be honest with you. I, I, the first time I saw this was on TV and I was on a trip with my family and it was playing in our hotel room and it was the, it was the edited version. The edited version is a legendary movie in its own right. And I mean, this, this is like the, the famous version that, that Paul Verhoeven wanted his name removed from. So it's just, it's like Jan Jansen or whatever he he Elizabeth Berkeley refused to dub her dialogue so it's a completely different person. Yeah. The that was the version that I saw the first time. And I don't even know if I saw the the whole thing. But also I don't know if you've seen the clips of the edited version but they like Oh yes, I have. How they kind of CG'd tops on all the women and stuff. There's like these like CG bikinis on everybody. And it looks so weird and out of place. Uh, They also released an R rated version of this movie on VHS because when this was released in on home on home video, a lot of the video stores, they had like policies sort of like theaters where they're not going to have movies that are rated NC 17 or X so they had to do an R-rated cut. And I think that Paul Verhoeven actually did that cut himself. But when you compare the two, uh, there's a lot of big differences between them. And I think the R-rated cut was only released on VHS. I think that all of the DVD versions and Blu- Blu-ray versions were the uncut NC-17 version. Which... Uh, I I think this is the second time that I've actually watched the the uncut version and uh it, it never it I never enjoy it. I I don't know why that I've seen this movie so many times because I really I really do hate this movie. I appreciate this movie very much actually. Uh and not in like the ironic camp way. Like I have fully bought into like the serious critical reevaluation of it. I think this is a genuinely good Paul Verhoeven movie. Like it's the kind of really harsh satire that a lot of his other like studio movies have been. Like it's it it fits well coming right before like something like Starship Troopers, which is I guess a more outwardly satirical movie about uh, like fascism and the mm-hmm. uh, and sort of excessive militarism. This seems Showgirl seems to be taking a script by Joe Esterhaz, which is 
a very Joe Hester Haas script, we could have an entire episode just about the dialogue in this movie. Uh, but Verhoeven makes it into something I find strangely fascinating. There's there are these ideas about like existing in this American culture that hypes up all of these ideas of building people up and taking them uh, and turning them into this idea of a fa- of fame and fortune and uh, ambition. And it's also exists in the same world where everyone other with this sort of aggressive objectification. And it's about how all of these different unsavory factors keep working within each other. I maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's what I see now. I've seen this movie a couple of times. Like I watched parts of it just because it's so notorious and well known now. But very recently, I watched it for the first time, and then I watched it again for the show, and I do genuinely buy into that subtext that people started to really discuss around it. First of all, I think that people are only recognizing it for its satirical elements now. I don't feel like uh-huh. I don't think that that was intended. I th- I think that that's what people are are currently doing with it as they reevaluate it. That being that being said, even with the satirical elements, I still don't think it's a good movie. Like I still mm-hmm. find it to be so grating on so many levels like i felt i I felt like esther house was completely out of and maybe verhoven too maybe both of them seemed completely out of touch with the subject matter they were covering it they seemed completely disconnected from it and it 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 just bothered me there were so many there's so many elements in this movie that bothered me this movie bothers me very much too uh when i say like that I genuinely appreciate this movie, and I do think that Verhoeven had absolutely uh, some kind of subtext in mind that I could absolutely believe that in the same way that it's more apparent in Starship Troopers. When I say that, I don't mean like this is an entertaining movie and it's fun to watch. I mean like I've seen this movie through twice now, and every single time in it is an emotionally draining experience. Like it just, it's punishing. Yeah. Like there's just some there's this is a deeply unpleasant movie and I think it's supposed to be. I think it is. I mean it's it certainly plays with like you said the themes of fame and objectification and the things that these dancers have to go through uh during this time. I don't know. I'm hoping that maybe now in modern in modern day that it that's you different. Would, you would hope. I'm, I'm hoping that it's better for them now, but I don't, I don't know. It could be the same, but, uh, that being said, I, I think that those themes are present. And I think that the problem is I don't think, feel like they're accurately represented because I feel like there's so much over the top silliness that happens in this movie that it can't be, that it's hard to take any of it seriously. Uh, and, and, there are a few moments that are, that are deeply troubling to watch. Um, Mm -hmm. and those are, those are serious moments of the movie and those can be taken seriously. I mean, particularly the scene 
that most people think of is, is the involving Molly and what happens to her. But so much of the movie is just so awful. Like, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that Elizabeth Berkeley has a lot to do with this movie being so rough because I'm sorry, but she is so bad in this movie. I think at the same time, uh, this was like what she was doing to try and like get past just her being seen as an actress on saved by the bell. And so she takes this role and like she's, so she's leading this entire like giant movie. There was so much writing on her as like the center of this movie. And like the Esther Haas script is just so surface value appalling. And Verhoeven's trying to do this whole other thing here. I don't think there's a way that this, I don't think there's a universe where this movie exists where people do not just throw everything onto her like this. It shouldn't have, I don't think this should have been a career derailing thing for Elizabeth Berkeley, but I don't see a universe where this movie exists where it isn't. Nor do I. And there was a, a long list of actresses that were offered this role in front of her, including like Pamela Anderson, Drew Barrymore, Angelina Jolie, Jenny McCarthy, Denise Richards, Charlize Theron, all these people turned it down. But Elizabeth Berkeley, it just so happened that say by the bells canceled during this time. And she signed on to do it. Uh, I think that, I don't think that all of the blame should be directed at her. I think that the script is terrible. And I think that Verhoeven made some questionable directing choices, uh, baffling, baffling directing choices baffling. <laughs> during this, but uh, she's doesn't, she's not good in this, like just plain and simple. She is not good at delivering her lines and, I mean, how would you deliver these lines, though? <laughs> Just more naturally than what she does. She's so stilted. And the the weird thing about her character in this is that she's like, she's either perfectly calm and not saying anything, or she's exploding on everyone yeah. around her. Yeah, it feels like roughly every other line in this movie was written in all caps with three exclamation points at the it end. It makes no sense. Where she just loses it, especially with her relationship uh, with Gina Gershon. The, mm-hmm. That relationship is so odd to me because it doesn't really seem like Gina Gershon's character is Crystal. Doesn't seem like she really does anything to offend her. Like, she doesn't say anything that bad when she first meets her. And she just, like, loses it on her. And then from that point mm-hmm. on they have this sort of weird, they have this like primal attraction to one another, but at the same time they hate each other. And then like, she'll say something nice and then just freak out on her. And it's so bizarre. You can never. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of that is that Joe Esterhaz. That is just peak. Joe Esterhaz does not know how to write female characters. He does not know how to write women. Yeah, and I think that that 
this movie is shows that very very He's clearly. Not, he, he, it like this is like a screenplay that sees women as an alien species. Perfect example of that is her relationship with James, Glenn Plummer's character. This guy stalks her through half the movie and Mm -hmm. she just doesn't even think anything of it. Like he just randomly shows up to where she works. Like, how does he know where she works? He shows up to her house. How does he know where she lives? And she just dismisses it like, Oh, it's whatever. It's not a big deal. And then she does the same thing to him too, where she brushes him off over and over again. And then she hooks up with him and then she freaks out when he, she sees him with another woman. But then that, that whole plot line, which we spend a significant amount of time on is just thrown away. And you're just like, Oh, that's gone. Like that's, we're just, mm-hmm. we're just ditching that plot line now, which makes me wonder why this movie is two hours and 11 minutes long. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, I can't defend any single aspect of the writing just taken as the writing. All I can offer you is that combined with Paul Verhoeven's ability to create uh, and bring out these maybe unintentional elements uh, to some of these uh, story beats or just some of these characters and combined with the fact that this movie is like just just visually is just so oversaturated with every color on the color wheel it's just exploding at you at all times in much as the same way that every character seems to be screaming at each other nonstop uh it does become an example uh it almost becomes like a working example of what of the aspects of like uh American culture and these ideas about what's considered desirable uh, interpretations of the American dream, it becomes almost a working example of that. And it just keeps throwing it back at you and then throwing and then going back in and then throwing it back at you. So you're exhausted by the time it's over because you have both witnessed an unironic uh, plot of it and just this completely surfacey uh under the surface verhoven deconstruction of it that still takes that same form so you're just being like pulled from every limb at once and i don't understand the people that you know like the the biggest single element of people that like this movie like it as like a campy movie that you talk back to the screen to i don't understand how you could just like engage this movie as a piece of entertainment because it it the its world is just so awful yeah uh i i don't think that i could get behind the like going to see this at like a midnight show and no, doing doing I like couldn't. the like a showgirls sing-along or you know that, that type no, of thing I, I just i couldn't do that i mean again going back to there there's a really violent uh rape scene that happens towards the end of the film and mm-hmm. that alone would negate any kind of fun you know goof goof watch for me 
I just I would not be able to get behind that. Yes, I we you have to also we do have to also recognize that the less emotionally traumatizing scenes that it is known for most famously the the uh sex scene in the pool between Elizabeth Berkeley and Kyle McLaughlin's characters that has entered the culture just because it's almost that like whiplash between uh your kind of bubbly entertainment and then the realities of its deeply miserable world between those two scenes uh then that they're happening within the same movie it's like the showgirls that people remember and then the showgirls is of the world that paul verhoeven's actually trying to show you right yeah that's a good point uh what a what a <laughs> what a scene too also yeah what like that pool scene we like everybody talks about it but boy <laughs> That was uh, heavily changed for the R-rated version. I actually watched the R-rated version of that clip, uh, and mm-hmm. they they changed that pretty significantly. Uh, the I have a quote here from Kyle MacLachlan, who talks about the movie, and he goes, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I said, this is horrible, horrible. And it's, very, and it's a very slow, sinking feeling when you're watching the movie, and the first time... And the first scene comes out and you're like, oh, that's a really bad scene. But but you say, well, that's okay. The next one will be better. And you somehow try to convince yourself that it's going to get better. And it just gets worse. And I was like, wow, that was crazy. I mean, I really didn't see that coming. (laughs) 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 That was Kyle MacLachlan's reaction at the premiere. I like every time that his character pulls out a cigarette because you know how they recut E.T. to take out all the guns and put walkie-talkies in? I feel like you could recut this movie, but every time someone pulls out a cigarette, it's a vape pen. (laughs) (laughs) And it would play a lot more to the point. Yeah, it would would definitely bring it into a contemporary setting, too. Yeah, this movie is set in such a weird world where there's so much attention given to, like, just these... uh, shows in vegas like there's so much media attention around it uh, it's ridiculous just... the 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 big party where uh molly's assault occurs that party uh-huh. in and of itself is utterly ridiculous the, uh-huh. the like the press that's there and the uh how they have somehow they have her uh, that that sign like the light up sign with her name and you're just like, what? They they got that? What if she bombed? Would they like not light up that <laughs> sign? Or I mean, it's just utterly. I mean, what what kind of world is this where yes, these people it, get I that much attention? Like they're that famous? It doesn't feel like a world where any laws exist. You know no, what I mean? Well, there, there's one scene that I think sort of exemplifies this is. There's a scene where one of the girls uh, falls on stage and mm-hmm. gets hurt. They leave her on stage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they leave her on stage the whole show and then uh-huh. and then tend to her after the show. Like after the show, all the people leave the auditorium and she's still laying on the stage injured. 
I also want to point out that there is a scene that like sometimes in the scenes in that same room and that and that auditorium, there'll be like characters walking in. And this is a very minor thing that I just noticed when I was watching it. But like if it's the cameras on the stage pointing out, there are no exit signs. The exit signs are never lit up. So this is obviously a world where there are no safety codes at all. (laughs) This is like and Uh. there's so much unadorned media attention to just these random uh las vegas like casino like resort shows i'm i'm beginning to, and like everybody feels like they should be vaping this feels like a movie set in a world where like all those like edgy internet libertarians have been running the u.s government nonstop <laughs> for at least 30 years before yeah. this movie happens this is my deep dive into showgirls it's about a weird internet libertarian universe where they where they apparently love to eat puppy chow because there's a whole conversation about eating puppy chow but i can't imagine this movie without it no yes this i have now i think seen this movie twice this year and i just don't have the emotional constitution to maybe watch again for at least another five to no i don't know i don't think i think this is it for me, I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again unless unless I have to watch it for like a show or an article or something. I don't think I will ever watch it again. Like, like I'm like I like Paul Verhoeven and I think this is a good Paul Verhoeven movie and when I say that, I mean I can't watch it. <laughs> it just makes me so uncomfortable. I I just think it's really it, it, it's just rough. I I don't mean just the content either. I just mean like the movie in general is hard to watch because it's so the 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 dialogue the performances everything is so awful to me i just can't can't do it now i did watch showgirls 2 pennies from heaven this weekend why would you do that Adam? <laughs> i did watch that and let me tell you if oh. if you think that showgirls is rough try watching showgirls 2 pennies from heaven because that is infinitely worse, infinitely worse. It focuses on the character of uh, Penny, played by uh, Rena Riffle, and it's written and directed by her. And it features several of the characters from the original film, uh, Dewey Weber, Greg Travis, and Glenn Plummer reprise their roles. And uh do you think do you think anyone ever told Paul Verhoeven this movie exists? I don't I don't know. Does he know about this? I don't know if he knows about it. I doubt he does. I don't know. I don't even know how she got the ability to make this. I'm not There's a lot of questions. That I have about showgirls like three too. hours long. It's two hours and twenty five minutes long, and there they made so she did another. There's a, a second cut called Showgirls to the Cut, I think, that is available on Amazon Prime. So you can watch the cut version. The cut version is like an hour and forty three minutes or an hour and forty four <laughs> minutes. <laughs> But but the interesting oh, thing no. about the cut version is that it actually contains 
footage that wasn't in the original one. So it was like a whole new edit of the film. Oh, Reyna. <laughs> yeah. So there's like, <laughs> there's like dance, there's like new dance numbers in it and extended scenes and deleted scenes that were not in the original one, but I watched the original one. So the two hour and 25 minute one. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've learned a lot. Uh, it is. So it's, it's a parody film. So it's not, I think it's supposed to be funny. And is it? Yeah. I, I, it, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be like a spoof. Cause the, the plot, is it funny? No, 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 it's, <laughs> it's not funny. It's really awful. It, it's like, Imagine if Tommy was so directed showgirls. That's oh. that's what you get with showgirls too. Uh very, very poor quality. I, I think a lot of people already think Tommy Wiseau directed showgirls with how they <laughs> accepted into the canon. <laughs> yeah. I think so. I think so too. Uh the man, it is so with Showgirls too, it's the exact same plot structure, almost the same plot structure as the original one, except that it follows uh, Penny, and she's like still struggling in Las Vegas. However many years later, this came out in 2011, and she's still with James. They're working on their mm-hmm. show that they were working on in the original film, and there's still how many people reprise their roles from the first movie. Four four people. So you have four four characters. The the guy who maybe it's Jeff the um the guy who was in the car at the beginning the when she was hitchhiking. <laughs> Nomi when when Nomi was hitchhiking. Back. Yeah, that guy's back. So you have like the beginning of this movie. It's the same thing where it doesn't even make sense that he would that he would be back. Yeah, so he comes back and he like picks her up and she's leaving Las Vegas going to LA. So, mm-hmm. and the exact same thing happens, but instead of pulling a knife on him in the car, she pulls a gun on him. And then he does the same thing where he leaves her and steals her suitcase. It's the exact same movie, but the, <laughs> the other, the other thing about this, this movie is that they mix in showgirls with Mulholland drive so it's oh. so it's also a parody of Mulholland Drive. So they mix in this like kind of sort of strange. Um, I, I guess they were trying to go with a, like a sur- I surrealist. I believe she was vibe. also in, yeah. in Mulholland Drive. Yeah, she was. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's just her making a movie about all the other movies she's been in. I guess. <laughs> yeah maybe maybe it's 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 like a it's like a filmed uh it's a it's a it's a filmed resume it's very odd i'll tell you that i don't recommend watching it it's i was not planning on it yeah it's uh really bad it's it's really 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 bad but does anyone does anyone vape in it if if they don't then that's a missed opportunity uh i don't think so i don't think i i don't recall any vaping i think this was still that's still before vaping was like really big oh because that's that's the that's the vibe showgirls gives off it's that everybody should be vaping all the time yeah the weird thing about showgirls too is that it this the settings are very strange uh a lot of it takes place in like 
busted up barns and like places that look like roadside antique shops and trailer parks. It's it does not feel like you're getting the the kind of glitz and glamour of Las Vegas in this movie at all. In fact, there's like one sort of uh, like establishing shot to show that it's in Las Vegas, and it's literally a picture of the Las Vegas. Oh, that's sign. good. <laughs> that's really good. Like that's what it's an act, It's just a picture of the Las Vegas sign. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, such a whole p- big part of the 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 first showgirls the Verhoeven showgirls is that it's just about like how how much of the most that Las Vegas is how bright it is how colorful it is how just garish the whole thing is it's about a garish world filled with terrible people yeah that's not the case with showgirls too it's quite the opposite she she seems to be really into the whole kind of John Waters sort of trash cinema. Like she made a movie called Trasharella before Showgirls Two, so she seems to be into that kind of uh, kitschy rockabilly, you know, Pink Flamingo style, trashy Americana. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so Showgirls kind yeah. of is a movie about trashy americana in a way oh definitely oh yeah i mean (laughs) that's kind of the whole thing it's about like americana and american ideas and how they're just kind of trash yeah i mean especially las vegas Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's too like it's about how las vegas is just too much it's it's too much (laughs) it is it really is that it's that movie that movie's just too much. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Everything is too much. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts on Showgirls before we end it this month? Uh, no, because I still feel like I have a lot of thoughts on it. If I start now, we're going to go for another <laughs> two hours of me trying to work through my thoughts on this movie, which is a mission that will never be completed, no matter how many times I try and watch this movie oh though i will say i did enjoy the uh in the in one of the very early scenes uh they play um david bowie's song uh i'm afraid of americans but it's like an early demo version or something so the lyric is i'm afraid of the animals but if you said i'm afraid of americans like if they had the final lyric in there then i'm certain that's the one thing that was missing that people completely missed what Verhoeven was going for if they just had David Bowie saying I'm afraid of Americans that one thing would have fixed the entire movie maybe me you might mm-hmm. you might have something can't there. convince me otherwise now might have something that's, there that's what it was missing it would have been a little bit on the nose but you know there's just so much going on in this movie that maybe you needed a little bit on the nose but that's the that's the one thing and one thing only that is wrong with this movie just the one obviously only thing what's your take on cult film of the 90s in general now we 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 touched on four of them this episode obviously there are tons of cult films during this decade Mm -hmm. and i'm sure that we will revisit this topic and we'll talk about a lot of the uh, other cult films that came out cult cult films could almost be like a recurring episode theme yeah i mean it's just it was interesting that when you 
suggested September of 95. I just looking at these movies, I was like, holy crap, like these all fit within that, within that topic. And I, I don't know if the, we're going to have that come up a lot, but you know, thinking back to the various cult films of the nineties, I think most of them were pretty great. We talked about dazed and confused. I would say that that was maybe one of my favorite uh, films that you could consider a cult film of the nineties. Mm-hmm. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas was another big one that comes to mind. And I think you could even include like Tarantino's films in this as well. Like I think like reservoir dogs and Pulp Fiction yes, to a degree. Yeah. I think, cer- well, I think certainly it's, reservoir it's dogs. Of, yeah. So what, what is your take on, cult films in the nineties. Like, have you seen a lot of what you would consider to be a cult film? And if so, how do you think that that compares to cult films of like the early aughts or the eighties? Um, well, as we've said, the start of the show, uh, in our little introductions is that, uh, cult movies say a lot about when they were made and they say a lot about when they get accepted as cult movies so if you look at a lot of the movies that from the 90s that have been accepted as cult movies it really does play into the idea that a movie that kind of gets that ironic or that kind of uh, second wave appreciation is that it is something going all in on its subject so you think about kind of perceptions of the 90s as a time where there was a lot of growth uh there were a lot of changes uh and so you dig into that idea that there are these movies embracing their entire world and just doing it with complete, uh, almost unquestioning loyalty to its own idea. And I think you see that in all of the movies that we're doing today. And I think, I guess that's just what a cult movie is in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is something very specifically 90s about some of these movies like showgirls and like hackers being given a very large budget to do that (laughs) yeah i think a lot of the cult movies that we saw in the 90s were sort of based around slacker culture i think that we we saw movies like clerks and airheads and films like that sort of embracing the slacker culture like uh like a lot a lot of those definitely a lot of angst feel like they come into a lot of the uh like the Gen X stereotypes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, reality bites, I think is another film that is the perfect example of that sort of coming of age, angst ridden Gen X generation that, uh, that is sort of lost, you know, Mm -hmm. we definitely got to cover reality bites. I think that that is a prime example of a nineties, a perfect 90s movie but uh let us know what you think your favorite cult movies of the 90s were send us an email at 90s at filmpulse.net let us know thank you so much for listening if you could please consider reviewing us on itunes and send us your 90s memories by dropping us an email uh you can visit our subreddit savebythe90s.reddit.com and we'll be back next month for a special halloween episode so stay tuned for that very excited for that as you know it's gonna be very good i love me some horror movies and i love halloween so 
very, very excited. Um, yes, as am I. Until then, for Ken Bakley, my name's Adam Patterson. This has been Saved by the 90s. Bye, everyone. <laughs>